Hello, everyone. If you would kindly take your seats. Quite paparazzi can continue their valuable work. I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy. Welcome to the review panel, a collaboration between the National Academy of Design and David Cohn slash Art Critical. And I just would like to thank our funders, Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. I would personally like to thank our, our Director of Educational Programs, Christine Widmer, and our sound engineer, Graeme White. Now I will introduce you to David Cohn, and David will introduce the panelists. David Cohn is art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun. He is editor and publisher of artcritical.com, and he is gallery director at the New York Studio School. David, it's all yours. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan, for being such a wonderful president and hosting this series. Put your hands up, ladies and gentlemen, if, you're, if this is your first time at the review panel. Well, that's... that's I've, I've certainly taken note of yours as well, Linda. That's wonderful. It's lovely to see some new faces. Let me just give you a quick rundown on, on the uh, procedure, then. Uh, it's, it's simplicity defined. We're looking at five shows that we've all had a chance to go and see ahead of the, sh ahead of the event. Um, I do a little PowerPoint presentation, just of some visual reminder of what we've seen, or uh, hint of what we've seen if you didn't get to it. And then we have a discussion among ourselves on the panel. And after two or three um, shows looked at that way, we bring in the audience to give you a chance to uh, let off some steam or probe us with some questions that we haven't thought of in relation to these shows. And then we will go back and polish off the, the other two or three shows on the agenda. And as Susan mentioned, we record these events, and they can be heard at artcritical.com slash review panel, where recordings of many of the uh, 22 or three previous uh, editions of, of the review panel can be uh, heard and maybe even enjoyed. Um, and, you know, with art, art Critical and um, the National Academy and the review panel are really being heard across the nation. Um, I was in San Francisco uh, uh, last month and uh, was chatting to a group of artists I'd never met. And then before being introduced, somebody said, ah, yes, you're David Cohen. I recognize your voice from the review panel. And that was uh, rather gratifying. That's a suggestion that Graham White is doing a rather good job of uh, editing and recording these proceedings. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to our distinguished panel. They are in alphabetical order. Svetlana Alpers, to my left. Svetlana is Professor Emerita at University of California at Berkeley. Um, she is uh, a renowned art historian. She is the author of The Art of Describing, The Making of Rubens, Rembrandt's Enterprise, and co-authored with Michael Baxendall, Tiepolo and the Pictorial Imagination. And her most recent book... Intelligence. Intelligence? Right. 
Yes, why did I write that down wrong? I've, I've even read it. So pictorial intelligence is what I was saying. Not exactly. She's the author of Tiepolo and the Pictorial Intelligence, uh, co-author with Michael Baxendall. And her most recent book is The Vexations of Art, Velasquez and Others. Uh, Svetlana Alpers is also the author of catalogue essays on various contemporary artists, including Alex Katz, and she uh, is has made her first venture into art production. She was a co-collaborator with James Hyde and Barney Kulock in the exhibition uh, of photographic images derived from Tiepolo, entitled Painting Then for Now. Uh, Fong Bui is an artist, uh, writer, and curator. He's uh, co-founder and publisher of the Brooklyn Rail. He is... Uh, a curator at large at the PS1 Museum, and he is uh, uh, very renowned as an installation artist. He is shown at the Sarah Bowen Gallery in Brooklyn and Worcester Art Space recently, and he, uh, his installations have won uh, prestigious prizes, for instance, the um, award at the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and here at the National Academy was the winner of the Eric Eisenberg Annual Prize. Um, and he is a visiting critic at Columbia and has also taught at Skowhegan, Montclair, and numerous institutions. And uh, we are all deeply in his debt for, for the Brooklyn Rail, not only for their uh, uh, range of uh, reviews, but for the wonderful and uh, open and generous uh, interviews that many of the leading writers and artists of our day have given with Fong and with others. And Linda Nocklin uh, is also, of course, a highly renowned art historian. If either Linda or Svetlana were alone on the panel, I would say Linda or Svetlana is the dean of art historians, but uh, you can't really have co-deans, can you? So we better just stick with highly renowned and very widely respected and highly influential uh, adjectives that would uh, certainly uh, extend to both these uh, ladies. Uh, Linda is, has been, and still is, I think, professor at the Institute of Fine Arts. Uh, her, her numerous and influential books include, uh, more quite recently, Bather's Body's Beauty, The Visceral Eye, published in 2006. Um, She's author of Standard Monograph on uh, Corbet uh, and was uh, active in the last big Corbet exhibition that we had in the city in, in the Brooklyn Museum, Corbet Reconsidered. And she's also at the Brooklyn Museum involved as, a, as, as an editor of the catalogue and organiser of uh, Global Feminisms. And her other books include Realism, Representing Women, uh, Women, Art and Power, and she's uh, highly prolific uh, as, a, as a critic of contemporary art, as well as being an expert in the art of the 19th century. Um, and her work is very frequently seen, for instance, in Art Forum, Art in America, etc. So, ladies and gentlemen, your distinguished panel. <laughs> Wonderful. So. Gabby, my able assistant, Gabby Grodin, has put together this beautiful PowerPoint presentation. I would just say um, our, our number one projector packed up this evening, so if you can catch sight of the little computer screen there, you might actually see a more faithful color reproduction of the works we're looking at. 
But uh, as we've said, these are merely intended as reminders of what we've all been seeing in the flesh, the work of Jeff Wall as our first artist. And I'm going to say nothing and let the projections project. Jeff Wall is an artist with an oft-stated ambition to pursue in photography uh, realism with a capital R. Um, some people might think, well, it's photography. How could it not be? I mean, but um, that would perhaps betray an, an ignorance of uh, photography, both its history and also technically how the medium works. Um, Linda, as, as the author of a book on realism, um, tell us whether you think his uh, ambitions to extend the, the language and the tradition of realism in painting in the photographic medium uh, makes sense and is vindicated in the... Yes, I certainly think so. And I think so in this last show, which I first saw in London at the White Cube and then saw again at Marion Goodman in a slightly different hanging. I'm particularly interested in the return to black and white as a, a kind of uh, sign of realism. And, of course, all the great documentary photography of the past was, in fact, in black and white. Um, it's very interesting, it seems to me, to compare the relative realism of color photography, which, after all, should be realer, because it has color, uh, and black and white. And yet, the gritty, edgy quality of black and white, and the fact that it's so big. I can't help thinking of men waiting, for example, in terms of Courbet's burial at Ornon. And I think mm -hmm. he thought of that, too, actually. Mm -hmm. um, these are not uh, simple photographs, either. They're, they're digitalized. He moves things around. Uh, he puts figures in where he wants them to be, and so on. In other words, he's constructing a kind of realism, and his subjects are the yes. subjects of realism. They're low down and dirty. They're uh, sort of unattractive. Uh, the chicken pluckers, I would say, is dead. Not everyone's dream job, is it? No, <laughs> no they're disgusting. Mm. Um, but um, I'm, I'm interested in the return to black and white on yes. the part of, of photographers who use large scale and mm. Um, uh, digitalization. I'm thinking particularly of Miwa Yanagi, whom I just wrote a catalog essay about, yes. who's about to have a yes. show. And she uses it totally differently mm -hmm. to construct the kind of macabre, somehow uh, dreamlike atmosphere of fairy tales, which is yes. her series. Yes. So it's used in different ways. Yeah. So Svetlana, um, Wall makes a distinction within his uh, routine. Um, works which, like this present exhibition, uh, fall under the category that he gives the name, uh, the category that he gives us of the quote near documentary, and the works which are more quote cinematographic, which is his usual uh, mode. And this is not a technical distinction, is it? It's it's more one of um, uh, genre or ambition. Um, did you did you feel that his calling? Did you feel that? You were in the presence of something more a documentary, more um, uh, allied to social experience than is common in his work from the past. Uh, could I um, address them as photograph? I mean, 
pick up from where Linda is and not quite answer your question? Is that is that permitted? Bueno. Because what I was going to say is, I found this a disappointing show. Mm -hmm. And I found the photographs disappointing, and I found the enterprise disappointing. So apparently I disagree with Linda on this. We always disagree. Yeah, so that's <laughs> right. We're going to get our right. money's worth, so that's why we're So um, what I would say, I mean, he, there are, after all, uh, f films still like things here, both the tenants and uh, mm -hmm. that one which is kind of um, kids playing war games, whatever it was mm -hmm. called, are compared in the catalog and such to neorealist Italian films. Now, what I feel is that Wall's black and white is not as it was when that was photography. And by that I mean when black and white photography was all there was, we didn't call it black and white, it was just photography. It only became called black and white when color came in. Now, his black and white has nothing to do with that old black and white. It has no light in it. It's all gray. It is not really black and white. And secondly, when you get close to these photographs, in, as in those rocks, it's kind of a smudge. You don't get that extraordinary amount of information, which Walker Evans at J to take two of the documentary photographers gave you. Or perhaps that um, Wall himself gave us in his color transparency okay, boxes. Okay, but we're now talking about his going to black and white. And yes. as he says, and he said at the back of that catalog that uh, Peter Galassi did, his big show at MoMA, hmm. in an interview he said, I'm really, I've changed my mind. I'm going back, I'm not fighting with photography anymore. I'm returning to some of its commonplaces and roots. Those are not quite his quotes. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, I think this, the scale of these pictures, and I think you said that in your review, is just not well thought through. I don't understand why they're so large. And in fact, compared to other artists we're going to be seeing and talking about tonight, I think he has a very weak sense of scale. At the, of those stones, you cannot tell. You saw one of them. There are, as you said, a diptych. You can't tell whether it's a distant view of a huge piece of stone or a close-up view of a small stone. And he might, he might, just might, doesn't care. Might the ambiguity not be the intention then? Well, I don't think it makes a very interesting mm -hmm. photograph. Right. Now, as finally, I would say, as far as the enterprise go, um, I mean, my own sense is that all the pictures in the exhibit seem false, doubly so. In other words, the representation that is photography is phot photographs mimicking photographs. I'm mimicking, let's say, with the stones, I'm mim mimicking Friedlander. Or with the doorway, I'm mimicking Ache, or I'm mimicking, in a sense, it's photograph after photograph. And the same thing happens with the enactments. They are not the real, it's not a still from a neorealist film, it's a performance of a so-called still. Now the problem for this, and I'll conclude right here, don't worry, the problem for me with this is that I think one of the great powers of the old photography was that it was in the past tense, that it shows you something that was, that has been. And he, because of his manipulation, has given that totally up. So now, what is this? It is, in other words, a sort of meta-photograph, and to me, hugely weakened because of that. Mm. 
Fong, that's quite an indictment. I mean, do you feel that he's, he is uh, failing in his... his I take amb- him very seriously. Uh, I mean, uh, that's Fong, why is your name Fong? Uh, Fong. That's real passion. Svetlana is, is, is offering something of an indictment here. Now, do you, do you no, feel... No, I, I think it's terrific to be squeezed between the two powerful ladies here who have... <laughs> You're not a woman, woman, not a lady. Let me make um, that clear, I'm please. I'm sorry, Linda. <laughs> it's okay. But, but very powerful uh, observations. Uh, Actually, we have you squeezed up against the wall, not to be attacked. <laughs> It's true, too. I don't know. I think that, uh, um, you know, the work of Greg Recruson and Eve uh, Sussman, likewise, to some extent, John Curran and uh, um, some of their uh, younger contemporaries, would not exist without Jack Warren, I think. Uh, and the discrepancy between what happened in the studio and what take place in seminar, uh, seminar rooms in university uh, is really interesting in that sense because uh, I think what had been regarded as a, a conspicuous feature in the last two decades as, as a practice of art, I think looking back, one had to give credit a little bit to, to Jeff War because in the 70s, I mean, he took a great deal mm. of time not painting uh, including the three years, I believe, he uh, pursued his postgraduate work at, in art history in, in Cultural Institute. Uh, he's a, a few artists who I feel take a kind of erudition very seriously that doesn't quite fall easily to be encodified. That yes. suggests uh, a mm-hmm. kind of quickening reward or issue. I think he's, he had a place that, that to me, was um, very conscious he himself very conscious of, mm-hmm. of, of what being taken from history, uh, and, and and in the time when you when you take back like Michael Free, denounced or basically uh, thought of painting uh, history of painting for money through synthetic cubism, Matisse was a sign of decline in, in the task of representing uh, realism or, or from life really. Uh, in other words, he thought that there no longer needed any kind of uh, iconographic, uh, uh, you know, uh, symbol. You know, uh, so I think it's interesting to put in that context. Uh, I feel that this group, however, of work, which I tend to agree with what Linda had uh, said earlier, because I feel even though they're now returning to black and white, which he started, I think, uh, nearly uh, a decade ago, it was not new, and it's gradually become the way it, it, it looks now. But, you know, in respect of the back room where the two backlit colors transparency, which we're all familiar with, I find the, the sick works in the front very, very moving because the darkness of the, 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 uh, the black and white is not so much that I can't find details and information when come up close, but in some way to me, um, they sort of remind me what Walker Evans did when he do the work for uh, Farm Security Administration because they're so monumental, they're large, but they have some intimacy, I feel. I particularly like the one that Linda had pointed out. Uh, I don't know the reference to cinema, is that correct? But it does remind me, beyond the, the, the old barrier or not, I feel there's imagery that, that remind me of uh, the seeker bicycle thief when he's going out looking mm-hmm. for the son's bicycle in the outskirts of Roma or even in the 
Mama Roma, you know, the, the great um, film uh, by um, uh, the other Italian filmmaker, was his name? Pasolini. Pasolini, exactly. So there's some of that, that resurrected to me immediately, and I, I find that, that um, they're very compelling because of that. Yes. So we've got a little bit of a debate going here about um, the actual qualitative effect of both the scale and the way in which a black and white is used. Um, in relation to specific images, uh, Linda, do, do you feel that you want to defend both the scale and the, the kind of gradation that he's um, achieving? Yeah. Um, I don't know, defend exactly. <laughs> he's, uh, or explore. He's, yeah, explore, let's say. I'm, I, I'm not a big defender. Um, yeah, I... It took me a while to get into these. You know, I saw it twice, and somebody from the gallery came out and explained uh, what was going on in some of them. For example, I'm a, I have a very literal mind, and I didn't realize that the children <coughs> in the barbed wire enclosure, or whatever it was, the fence, were playing. I thought they were some part of an abandoned family who had to sleep out in the field. Oh. I saw it very differently. I never get things right. I mean, I always am a little off for some reason. But is there a right? I mean, maybe I don't know. that's... No, but that's what he intended. He mm -hmm. intended this to be children near a school yes. playing games. And mm -hmm. of course, my take on it changed somewhat at that point. Then I was amazed with... I have to tell you what happened with one of the color ones. Um, talk about realism. I went into the other room, and there was that church, the Ukra is it Ukrainian or Slavic church. Slavic Pentecostal church. Church. And I thought I was looking out the window. At first, I absolutely thought I was looking out the window at that church. The light box was so intense after the black and white. And even once I knew there cannot be on the sixth floor at uh, on Fifth Avenue, uh, Pentecostal church out the window. Mm. The illusion was so intense for some reason. It was a window shape, it was the size of a window, and it looked to me, uh, no matter how many times I told myself, now that is more than realism, of course, that's delusionism, if, <laughs> if you want to call it that. And yet it had that strange power of the delusory, which I thought was very interesting. I'm not sure he intended that. But the black and white were much less mm -hmm. delusory, of course. They were flat. They had little light emerging from them. They were more, um, shall we say, pictorial and, and overtly pictorial, I think. Mm. Yeah. Like Some that. people have been, you know, historically, I mean, color is not that new. There was... First of all, there was color tinting of photography from the outset, but uh, the technology of color photography was kind of there in the in the early 1930s, wasn't it? So for years, both in in, in cinema and in film, there's been this. There was a sense that uh, black and white was cleaner and purer and more colorful. In a way, more colourful because it didn't rely on a conventionalised technicolour or whatever kind of colour was being offered, and instead allowed, as it were through its immediacy, allowed the viewer to fill in the color or to, or to, to have a sense of reality. Um, would, it, would anyone like to think about um, whether 
uh, in in war. Um, that's really what's going on. That that, that we're we're after, we're trying to get a, a cleaner, purer view. Svetlana has specifically said the opposite that she feels it's photography no. about photography. No, he might be trying for that. Listen, I have a high. Um, admiration for for Wall. I mean, I didn't say that because we assu- I assumed that, although I don't for everybody now, but I did. So I didn't begin with a speech about that or a comment. I just wanted to get in because I take it seriously, which is why I found this disappointing. Mm-hmm. I think that Hakusai, that strong gust, gust of wind, is a marvelous work of art. I think that dark night, which was at Marion Goodman a couple of shows back, those homeless people in that dark, dark, it really isn't black and white, it's deep gray, is fabulous. But I don't think all his stuff is fabulous, and I think these black and whites are mimicking Ajay or Friedlander. And if you go to the Met and look at Friedlander's views of, of Central Park, they're just much more powerful photographically than those rocks. We're talking now about the the way you see an image. So maybe, indeed, he does want to go back, as he says he does, to the old photographic habits. But Mm. this is black and white after color, and in his case, after light boxes. And to me, it just isn't powerful. It doesn't work. What about the scale, then? Why, why, Why do images that purport to be documentary and therefore belong within a tradition of uh, reportage, photojournalism, things that we would expect to see in a magazine or a book. What, what is the real, uh, for the viewer as opposed to the collector, what, what is the point of having them be so big? Anyone feel that uh, they, they need well, to be so big and it's useful that they're well, so big? I, mean, I think that it's simply because of the mere, the mere scale that it does have a certain power present. I mean, when you look at the, 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 the period that Gustin was leading through the mid-60s, walking through the abstraction, you, you do see the relationship in which how the configuration of the image centralized in the canvas, which varies, reminiscent to Morandi, particularly his drawing. And, and if Gustin had made the painting small, I don't think it would hold true to the way we can read the visibility of well, how yeah, but with respect, Fong, I'm not in. Uh, I'm not saying that no one should ever make a big work of art. I mean, but I'm looking at these specific works well, of art this, and wondering about their in scale. In this case, I think Wall is saying, "What I'm not doing is making a beautiful, refined, uh, small size print like classical uh, black and white photography with all its great range of." of, of velvety blacks and, and so on. I'm making a big, flat, un, uh, unglowy kind of photography, kind of deadening it down in a way, um, as, as an opposition to uh, the, the black and white photography that we call classical. I think it's anti-classical, just as Courbet was anti-classical. Don't you think the leaves, we all saw at the beginning that doorway, which yeah. you might say is, is a, is, I mean, doorways like store windows yeah. were the basis, basic subjects of 
the old photography. Mm. I thought that the, one, one of his problems, although he might court this, is that the leaves on the ground in front of the doorway look like he put them there. You see, this is the meta sense of these works. They are performances of photography, and I deeply think that that is very interesting in the photographic world right now. Vic Munitz performs photography. In other words, this is a tendency now in advanced photography, and I think great virtues of photography are being lost, of the medium. But that would just be, you know, a difference. Well, it just, it's so hard to identify how that came to be, but during the, the period of the 70s when artists, performing artists, especially body art, when they performed over the actually observing and experienced the performing, the only thing that could be, uh, you know, obtained or, or keep it record is really recording it and somehow uh, made into photography. And mm -hmm. I think so there's a history that goes further yeah. back. Um, I, I don't know whether how I feel uh, about what you have said there, though, because I feel the, the, the one, one particularly, I think it's called cold storage, which is the interior, mm -hmm. that huge four column that we see there, right. is very frightening to see that in the mold or the oh, eyes silly. are frozen mm. coming down. It's very perverse picture, extremely mm. frightening. I find it, you know, very, mm. very compelling because mm. the weight had inverted and it had such an incredible solidity and, and gravity at the same mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and it's stronger than the four column that it holds. Yep. Mm -hmm. So there's some, I think, spatially play there that. I feel very, I, I find it very mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Great. Let's move on to our next show, which I believe is, uh, it's Michal Rovner. Okay. Great. Well, from, from a photographer pursuing, pursuing realism to an artist giving us something very literal, um, uh, Svetlana, literal but at the same time very uh, pregnant and no doubt symbolic. Did you, did you come across this work as, as uh, did, you, did you engage primarily with the work um, as, as a symbol for something else or did you find yourself absorbed by the physicality, the actuality of the materials? Good point. I mean, I think that um, Pace 21st Street is one of those exhibition spaces like Cooper across the street, which gives as much as it receives from what is put in. In other words, last year we had styrofoam cups and they looked, a mass of them, they look great. And I think this looks great. And the space helps, encourages one to feel the, I mean, it, it's, they're using that space for particular purposes, as some galleries intelligently do. And they've done it more obviously perhaps with huge rusticated blocks or what look like, you say, than with styrofoam, but it even worked with styrofoam. Um, I just don't get this piece, or rather, I don't accept its pretensions. I'm sorry to be um, worried again, but I am. Uh, we're told in Fong's interview, which is very interesting, with uh, Rovner in, uh, in The Rail, that it's an echo of, maybe, of a Bedouin house that she repeatedly saw across the border and that this has been built out of stones from both Israeli and Palestinian dead houses, essentially ruined houses or, or whatever, destroyed houses, and built by Israeli and Palestinian um, uh, workers, and that the artist herself, and we see her in the video, which is playing in the gallery, numbered them. Now, I really, the words that came to my mind is I want to call her bluff. In other words, 
This is, she is papering over or stoning over a deadly serious situation and claiming a grandeur for kind of bringing it all together that this just does not have. I mean, given the facts of two communities divided among other things by a wall, not of stone but of concrete, uh, this structure seems to me to be politically nowhere. Uh, it seems to me a presence that really is not earned. And I would contrast this with the work of Kentridge, who was given short shrift by a panel here a month ago, because I think his, if you're going to think of it politically, he went through apartheid, he's gone through a truth commission, and he doesn't simplify, he just says we have to face this in some way. I don't think this is facing anything. Now, I was, there's no acknowledgement of this. It's kind of just hopeful. I don't know what to make of it, as I said. The final thing I'd say is the video starts with a uh, truck of rocks being unloaded. And what went into my mind, that marvelous video of Smithson's, Smithson's spiral jetty. And then I thought that the spiral jetty as an artifact has both human resonance and grip. Maybe that's political. In other words, it doesn't have to be about people building walls and such. That seems to me a hugely powerful human work, the spiral jetty, by which this is just, I don't know what to make of it, it's nothing. It's a, therefore, I call it pretentious. Well, I, I just don't know how, how even though, uh, well, that's very, again, uh, great deliveries. <laughs> I'm just but, trying uh, to get, it's hard, you know, I thought about this a lot. It's not delivery, it's thinking. I would rather think of it in a different way, not because I have interviewed her. I would rather, for one thing, I have to say something about when artist does something, with or without political awareness or, or, or agenda, it never actually had to materialize into the work of art. I mean, it's not, it's not any less so than, than your Damien Bourne, who recently accepted Palestinian citizenship to yeah. denounce the, the, you know, the dispute between Palestine yeah. and Israel. Yeah. Or, I mean, you have many other examples of that case. Uh, but I think for uh, Michal, the way in which he works is extremely visceral, and this is not exactly what we would rather, ex you know, expect it in terms of making a sculpture. I would rather call it an object, monumental object, and it, the, the the collection of over a thousand rocks that found different houses from Palestine and various places in Israel put together. And I think the context for me to read it is more about pictorial. Looking, the problem I see, I find it extremely interesting in the repetition, the your repetition, the numbering of the rocks, not because reminding herself when it is installed and resembles somewhere else, but the act of it has been very embedded in her work that go further back, I think from the beginning, going back and forth that, that hill, looking over the border and photograph this house. So that's a psychological connection, but in the meantime, she make all the work that lead into this. And what compelled me about this piece is that single crack that opened just enough for you to look in, but you can't enter it. And there's another opening on the left. To me, it's a, a spatial discrepancy. It's almost uh, as I mean, this is not this is a joke, but somebody asked, uh, I think, Bonnet Newman. <laughs> about Barnett to the yeah. Koonin. What do you it. think of Barnett? Yeah. Well, he say that, well, it's like trying to go into an appointment you have in a big corporate building, and you run because you're late, and then by the time you get to the elevator, it's about to close. 
So something of that effect that, that I think it has that pictorial present that is very compelling. And I, it takes me a while to look at it. So it was not something that you can come in, have a quick glance, walk around twice, and leave. You kind of have to consider what actually inside that lie on the floor yes, in a proportion. A little bit of the etant donné, isn't it? You want to, you expect if you could just peep around further enough, you, you come across something. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, Baudelaire in part of his spleen, uh, yes. when he, uh, in one of the essays, when he described going through the, the dark alley in Paris uh, and looking into this open wide window with fully lit, he just barely glanced through it. But and then came this tiny crack and barely a light there mm -hmm. that allows him to look more yes. carefully, more deeply, you know? And I think that that's what compelled me about the piece. Did you find this a, a rich metaphorical piece, Linda, or, or a pretentious disappointment? Or something in between neither. the two? <laughs> not neither and not in between. Um, I had been to Israel last June and traveled a bit there and met quite a few Palestinians in Israel itself, so I don't think that the wall totally <laughs> uh, destroys interaction. So I, I, I didn't feel that. Also, I was, when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, it's, a, it's like a, um, an Egyptian mastaba, which is what, I mean, it reminded me of a certain kind of historical form. Uh, but then Michal Rovner came into the gallery and was very interested to talk to me about it and show me all the different aspects of it. So of course I kind of warmed up to it. Um, I was very interested in the numbering, which transforms it into a kind of conceptual archeological project, mm -hmm. because that also Absolutely. means yeah. it's a reference to archeological practice, as are the stones themselves collected. Mm -hmm. But it means it can be taken down and reconstructed. Exactly. And I thought that was part of the, uh, well, more than conceptual, it was almost like a performance piece by, <laughs> by those uh, workmen. Because though it looks so permanent, looks like thousands of years uh, have gone into it, it's actually something that's quite ephemeral in a certain sense. I was also puzzled by something contradictory about it, which was the constant reference to the fact that no uh, cement was used to hold the blocks together, and yet in the film right. there seemed to be they were drilling to get the yeah. cement apart. Right? And I was I was a little surprised. Uh, she so. told me there is a little grout. I mean, I oh, asked about okay. that, but it's 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 a traditional way of okay. building where I the wanted, weight of the I stone and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not uh, not the usual brick wall yeah. with a thick, heavy... What interested me was how it was done and not its mm -hmm. symbolic meaning and how it could mm -hmm. be undone so... Rel I mean, hard, it's hard, of course, and then put together again in such a very mm -hmm. different situation. And what kind of meaning does that... Uh, building it up, taking, mm. numbering it, taking it down. I mean, it's like creating an mm -hmm. archaeological I'm thing. still coming to terms with the piece, yeah. and I'm yeah. a little torn between yeah. different positions I'm hearing here this evening. Um, I kind of haven't liked her work so much in the past and found myself warmer towards this one. Um, I kind of like the fact that um, it's... 
not a resolved and obvious and trite symbolism. I mean, it, it sounds a little as if, Svetlana, you are able to see a specific feel-good factor. Here's a nice, beautiful house that's been made out of the discarded. Here are fragments shored against our ruins. Here are, here are stones from such a ethnically, politically uh, diverse range of places come together in this beautiful structure. We can all be a happy family if we just um, be nice to each other or whatever. I, I don't think that there is necessarily uh, quite such a simplistic symbolism at, at play there. I think that um, there's, there's the hint that it could be something else. What else? Well, um, I find also... well. Quite what else, I don't know. So, therefore, it's uh, an open uh, no, possibility. But, but I that... don't think it's at all about uh, happy coming together. I think it's a very ominous structure. I, it doesn't inspire... It could just be saying... An Israeli woman who is not living in Israel but in America to build such a... a she has a farm in Israel. That's I know she made. does, but she, has, but she talks, in fact... That was very interesting in the interview about living here, living there, and how you deal with all this, mm -hmm. um, or how you deal with back home and what's going on back home when you're living here. Um, you know, it just doesn't seem to me that she's tussling with a problem. She's simply erecting, hopefully, something. And that's fine. I mean, okay. But other people have tussled with problems. I think that English artist who I once saw on BBC News who drew graffiti on the actual wall. That seemed to me an interesting act. Or I don't know if any of you have seen Chantal Ackerman's De L'Autre Côté, which is a, a movie dealing with uh, the border between Mexico and the southwest of the United States and people coming across it. These are people who were taking on issues between people and she isn't, and that I, and yet she is, because she says, well, look, Israelis and Palestinians built this, and, uh, and it's, it, it is a kind of community activity. If she just said the Israelis built this, then, you might, then it would be different. So I, I don't see how you can well, sort of have it and not have your stones and not eat it, so to speak, or have your <laughs> have cake your and not, not eat build it. Have your stones not build a castle. Right. Yes. Well, I don't understand that. Well, I, I think she has built it. The collection, the act of going out and select the rocks, is already related to what Linda had said earlier, and then put them in that context of the structure that would fit, that would make sense, build it up. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other thing that I think the scale have a great thing to, to do with the way that we relate to it as an object. Mm -hmm. It's not too big, it's not too small, and, and the writing, in fact, has something to do with perhaps uh, those who have number in concentration camp. I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze everything. She has not and, earned uh, that. I'm sorry. So, all right. No. The point I'm saying is that I don't think all anything. All the worst, frankly. But you know, Spilana, I don't see any explicit sign of what she's intend to do. I well, see the form. That's good, isn't it? That's a great good works of art are ambiguous, but they're not yeah. just meaningless. I mean, ambiguity is fine. Let's say it was well, ambiguous, I, how, but I can't see how in what house, way it's interesting. How can a house ever be meaningless? Because for start, it's a house. I mean, it's a building. It's a structure. So how can that be meaningless? It's a, I mean, otherwise, you're going to dismiss 90% okay. of the art of the 20, 20th century, aren't you? I mean, uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, 
It is a conceptual work, though. I mean, it has a kind of. Well, sen- what's the concept? I, I keep asking someone to explain. N- no, what no, the that's is. not what conceptual art is. I mean, it's I'm not a question. I'm joking. That's yes. a joke. Okay. Well, haha. But um, <laughs> it's. We have a question. Yet. No, we don't take oh. questions yet. Thanks. <laughs> How it's made is clearly a part of its, right. integral to its value. The fact that these stones have been assembled and the builders are not allowed to cut things down in order to have them fit. Whatever it is where it is has to fit. Mm-hmm. Um, this, it, it, knowing this gives you some sense of um, uh, some, some value, some meaning to what might be happening there. I'm not going to get right behind this work because... I, I suspect it, it might be tugging on one's conscience because of um, what the things are and where they've come from, and it's a little bit of the uh, uh, archaeology museum sensation of the sumptuous kind of diverse but nonetheless homogenous uh, uh, stone we have there. Um, but um, I think that there's, there's a possibility that I think it has ability to generate possible meanings and possible identifications. Well, and that's all, something, that mean, is something that's strong in a work of art. It, it, it could come in a place. So there is a place to mm-hmm. imagine, to look forward to. So it's not religious or ritualistic in that sense, mm-hmm. but it's longing, a longing for mm-hmm. a place. And I think in that context, to me, it has an incredible mm-hmm. present. I think what's really odd about it, too, is thinking of it being constructed on this bare, wherever it is, Israeli plain, and then taking it all down and then putting it up Mm -hmm. in an art gallery in Chelsea. It's like a portable Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, well, it's bigger. (laughs) It's it's big. It's... um, it reminds me of that scene, was it Bringing Up Baby, where that man is reconstructing the, the skeleton? And, huh? The dinosaur, you mean in the National the History dinosaur, Museum? The right. dinosaur, yeah. And then it all falls down. But hmm. it has, say, it reminds me of that kind of reconstruction. Hmm. In but let's say she'd made something fragile. You understand what I mean? In other words, that's having your stone and eating it too. This Stefana, is not the fragile. Mm, I've got in a feeling words, that you've decided. This woman's Israeli. Israel-Palestine's but got a big But she makes problem. this her subject. No, no. I, I wouldn't do it if she didn't bring together Israeli and Palestinian hands to build mm-hmm. it and use the stones from Israeli and Palestinian houses. That mm-hmm. was what she tells us. If she didn't say that... I would agree more with what Linda is saying, but that does influence, and it's intended to influence how you look at it. It does, but it's not, it's impermanence. Even though it looks permanent, it is very impermanent. You can take it apart and well, do it by numbers this somewhere is, else. This one's called number two, and I suspect there will be many other time that follows. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah. that's not such great news, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we're having trouble with, with, with the one, but uh, <laughs> it's not necessary. We're not going to get any resolution by uh, multiplicity. <laughs> Let's move on to our next show, which this time actually is going to be the... Sutherland and um, Sullivan. Catherine Sullivan, who frequently collaborates with 
other hands, in this case, in the, in the, in the sense, in the triangle of need work, collaborating with Sean Griffin, the composer, Dylan Skybrook, the choreographer, and, um, oh, don't turn off the light, just, okay, never mind. You, I can't remember his name. But the Nigerian gentleman who's the director, I'd love to give you his name, but I'm gonna have to, Kuali Afoloyan. So really we have th th three distinct works within the, the exhibition, the Triangle of Need and then the multi-channel installation piece. Um, if, if Rovna is teasing us perhaps or encouraging or discouraging um, a, a, a sense of what her work might mean, um, Catherine Sullivan is giving us a script in uh, Neanderthal, which uh, <laughs> takes that uh, dilemma a stage further. What were you able to make of it, Fong? Well, let's Fernand go first, because I like to... <clears throat> All right. Well, um... <laughs> very, very chivalrous of you to the quote-unquote lady, but um, we will nonetheless well, love to hear what you have to say. I remember seeing the, um, the five-channel video um, that was at the Whitney, and then a live performance down at the, I think, the Oranson Foundation mm -hmm. in Norfolk, yeah. Low East Side. Uh, that was part of the, both was part of the, the, the Whitney Biennale. Right. Uh, and and why the, the, the so-called on-screen video was so well edited so deliberately uh, reassembled, the live performance was rather spontaneous and at times very chaotic. Uh, but I came away, what came to me actually, for some reason I, I'd, um, I have a few drinks of a friend afterwards, but actually with Jonas Makers, and the first thing came to me was the, was the great essay by um, um, Von Kleinst, Heinrich von Kleinst, the 18th. Oh, yes. The one on oh. dolls? Yes. I think it's called On the Marriott Theatre. It's an account of, of him mm -hmm. who, who would go to see a lot of live, uh, you know, theatre, Marriott Theatre, with, with, uh, with his, I think, an actor friend who was a, a principal actual dancer at a local theatre in Berlin. And the, he asked a friend about the experience, and the friend the, told him that he, who wants to be a great dancer, uh, could learn a great deal from this mute gesture of, of the puppets. And he went on to explain about, um, you know, I think giving some example or tools stuck out in my mind was the, uh, if the, the, the dancer who, who dances, a young woman who dances Daphne, uh, who's been pursued by uh, Apollo, when she turned, look at him, her soul is on her back, not in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with a young man who dances, uh, you know, uh, I think Paris, who's surrounded by the three goddesses when he gave the apple to, uh, you know, Aphrodite. Uh, to, mm -hmm. yeah, to Aphrodite. Um, it's in his soul, is in his knee, not in in his eyes. Mm -hmm. So it, it has something to do with the gravity of it's being a straight line and the center of gravity is a straight line. So everything else, like the limbs, would move in curved linear manner. Mm -hmm. So for that, it, 
it resembles the movement of a dance or a, a form of movement that, that is natural to uh, a body, mm-hmm. human right. body. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that was very, uh, the key for me to understand her work in some, some way. But I don't know whether the reference to this piece, recent piece, uh, Canetti, was fine, because I had to read a lot. Yes. And I sat through the whole half an hour. I did the whole thing today, so I didn't quite spend enough time. I'm, I apologize, but I, I'm familiar with her work before. But there's the layer of history of the kind of okay. reference into to fiction and, and current event and all this kind of collision between verbal language and gesture is yes. fascinating. But I think this one is a bit more complicated to grasp. Yes. And a little bit too demanding, I thought. Yes. It was demanding, wasn't it, Linda? Um, no. I just let she myself sit down and sink into it and float away. I, I didn't demand at all because I didn't attempt to understand it. I just let myself go. And um, it tickled my unconscious, it tickled my fancy. Um, I remembered things, I felt things. I, I think it was beautiful at times. It was totally puzzling. I, I, I had not a clue except a few. few. Um, one person was Napoleon, another was Josephine, I thought, at one moment. Um, it was at Vizcaya, which I've been to quite often, because I used mm-hmm. to go down to Miami when I was a kid, and we always went to Vizcaya. So that was a memory. There were memory images. The dancing, I thought, was uh, marvelously referential, and everything was self-referential as anything. It was about how people looked in jerky movies early in mm-hmm. their history. It was language that you couldn't understand, but you didn't need to understand. They were marvelous mm-hmm. kind of yes. cookie grunts that um, meant that they were communicating, but not communicating. Um, I thought that dance sequence when they did uh, all, three, or, three of them, I thought mm-hmm. that was enchanting. It was grotesque, it was mm-hmm. silly, it was wonderful. I had lessons from Isadora Duncan's adopted daughter, Marie-Thérèse Bourgeois, and we did that step. That came right out of it. That was a Bacchic step. And we had little dresses made from window curtains, just like that. So, I mean, it certainly did it, trigger memories. It, then, it triggered it? Memory, memory and desire, yes. and was clever and beautiful, and never mm. let you get beyond the fact that this was yes. being made, uh, and yet yes. it had great beauty, I thought, and, and fun. Beauty and fun. Svetlana, <laughs> did you let yourself go and just be washed over by the yeah, beauty I mean, and fun? Never, I mean, never. It's, it's wonderful to hear it described that way. I, my reaction, um, well, you know, I'm not a video, I'm not one of those people who goes to a museum and stands, or an exhibition, and stands in front of the screen. I tend to go to something that's still and not to something that's moving. So I'm not really a good one to judge video things. I'll preface it with that. But this one really, I have loved some. Tacitadine, that wonderful lighthouse, but that mm. had no people in it. That lighthouse light at Marion Goodman's mm. about, it was just fabulous. And I have seen it. So there are ones that I really care about. Um, I thought the mansion was probably the best thing. As far as the theater went, um, it, I, I was reminded of how you feel when as 
when you're a grown-up and children put on a play. They spend all day getting ready to do it, and then they do it, and then you have to sort of sit through as they take great pleasure in what they're doing. And what it looked to me like is this is a group of people who had a marvelous time doing this, and they did. They were enjoying it, but it, well, I didn't have a clue what they were doing, but they were having a good time. If it were Dada, they wouldn't have filmed it. They would have just done it. And I would have been happy to go down to Vizcaya and have a performance and go away. As it was, I sat there and I finally thought, saying to all of them, would you please go away? And then I suddenly thought, Svetlana, you can get up and just walk out of here, which I then did. Now, as far as the meaning, (laughs) but I went back three times because I really took this seriously. Now, look, the meaning is serious. And if you buy the booklet that goes with it and you see what at one point in the, in the, when they're not speaking mumbo-jumbo, which is Neanderthal talk, and she's trying seriously to reconstruct Musterian language, which mm-hmm. is what the Neanderthals talk. So it's not just something of our dreams, it's something specific, prehistorical that she's doing. And at one point when they're speaking English, and it's supposed to be a critique of us, and I really found that absolutely unsustainable. Now, it could That doesn't contradict what Linda is saying. But if we want to see what does the person who makes it think she's doing, offering a critique of us now, God knows we can be criticized, but I don't find appealing to the Neanderthals in mumbo-jumbo to be a very effective way or useful way of criticizing us. Now, let me say two things. One of the things that is said is, do we think our civilization is the best one to advance? In other words, they are supposed to be criticizing us. Now, there are two things I want to, I'll just very quickly say two things about this. It sent me back to a marvelous book by David Lewis Williams called The Mind in the Cave, which is a kind of developmental um, anthropological account of how our in caves came to be. And the argument is there was a conflict. It's not nobody, everybody doesn't accept this, but it's a very powerful account. And I went back to that book because of this, because that is a serious account of the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And in fact, it was a tension between them, really, and the Homo sapiens getting certain advantage that began to be, on this account, shaman, Homo sapiens shamans, distinct from what the Neanderthals can do, started to paint in caves. The other thing that I went back to do was to read some Beckett and some Mallarmé, because mumbo-jumbo, primal sounds, have indeed been thought about and have been invoked by writers. Beckett goes right into that. I mean, it's part of his going into another language and leaving English and going into French. But there, the mumbo-jumbo really has effect about how we think of ourselves. So I was very persuaded by what Linda said. I mean, I agree, I didn't let myself go enough, and the movie and the, might have demanded that. But if you look at what's going on there, it seems to me ill-thought, ill-formulated, and certainly is not any kind of a viable critique of us, although we deserve it. Well, I find it... Okay. Okay. <laughs> I also find the great humor in it, actually. It reminds me of uh, uh, this incredible essay of... Um, Gail Lichtenberg, who really was known as the great wit of Europe beside Voltaire, and uh, he was a great, keen critic of language as well as, um, you know, all the experience of, in life, but uh, particularly uh, uh, an essay called On Tales, where he 
drew many pictures of dog tails, mm -hmm. and then as an exercise drawing for the reader, he would conclude for the readers, and it say, if Goethe has a tail, which one, which one of these would it be? So there's a, there's a, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of humor here. Mm -hmm. uh, when Goethe, who's known as a, a very friendly person, I mean, who's a friend of Lavater, the, the leading author of Science of Physiognomics of Time, so there, I think there's a layer of evidence in, in Sullivan's awareness of all of these historical references, mm -hmm. which I find is fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. However, the, the, the whole thing about Neanderthal or the homo uh, neonatalis, is how you say it, which uh, reference to uh, Joachim Neander, a little bit too far-fetched for me, that mm. I couldn't find my way into the whole romantic uh, notion and, and mm. the, the, the using pretext for given excuses for the, the superiority of, of yes. Western culture and colonization. I so find presumably that if, the, um, if, Neand if the Homo sapiens are painting, the, 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 the Neanderthals preferred conceptual art, did they? Is that, is that, is that the um, anthropological? <laughs> um, I, I think the humor is important. I couldn't quite get the, the mood of it. Um, uh, sometimes it doesn't matter to me. I mean. It was one of those shows where I made the mistake of doing all the reading after I'd seen it. So I thought, oh my God, I missed all that. I mean, but, but, um, but Linda might be right there. But, that I didn't don't read, read any. Don't I read. think Linda's right. But, she but, liked but it best than she read Linda's right. To, so okay. Linda's right. But, but this is that, that's precisely my point, is to say, when I was there in the show, if you haven't read anything, you're just with the performance yeah, that's, itself. That's right. Precisely. That's if you are in that situation, then you should definitely be taken in a particular but taken by a particular right. mood. And I didn't know whether it was, it was Beckett or Monty Python. It was between, <laughs> it was, I didn't know whether it was deadly earnest or bizarrely comic. So, I mean, that, of course, is a genre of comedy to be deadly earnest and but, not. Uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, I, I think sometimes it was funny. It was very self-parodic very often. Mm. Um, I think there were serious, and visually and, and musically and in terms of sound, serious interventions within that. Um, but as I say, I couldn't possibly tell you what it was, quote, about, and I'm not sure it's really about. Linda, can I follow what you just say there yeah. and what you say earlier? Uh, which I forgot to, to give this incredible quote again by Gil Chinberg because it's really interesting in this context. He once say, Who is uh, this, sorry? Gil Lichtenberg again. Uh -huh. He said, in all the languages, the word to be is irregular, hence metaphysics. And I think if you bring that, that contact into the spatial movement uh, of Sullivan's way of colliding these people and give a certain kind of expansiveness especially in the back room in where it's take place in this Baroque yeah. architecture, uh, but it's, 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 it's have, uh, I think, neoclassical renaissance. Yeah, a lot of neoclassical. It's strange little hybrid architecture space. And then the front, black and white, the three channel, uh, are very compressed, very, uh, I would say, almost mm. claustrophobic. And, and, it, and it's referenced a little great deal to Yvonne Rayner too, taking dance out of the context of, of, of mm -hmm. dance. Mm -hmm. 
so that it reveals movement as pure movement. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things that, that she does between these references and they appear to be extremely natural. Well, might it be a transitional piece, and we can hope mm. that the next ones that she does will be sort of more. Hopefully, what I, what, out I really, a bit. what I really liked was the was not just the ambition, but the the generosity of working with um, artists in other mediums who are obviously at the uh, forefront of what they're doing. And although it didn't for me gel, Could the you, yeah. the, um, the 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 level that it set itself is, was encouraging. I think, for instance. Uh, compared to uh, Isaac Julian, seen in the same space uh, recently, I, the, the Julian we, we discussed here at this panel, I, I felt was really so disappointing from an artist who has produced great things in the past and is essentially producing MTV, yeah. that this was, um, I think, um, even though I couldn't see it, couldn't sense its mood, I, I, did, um, I did sense its ambition. I want to clarify, because Linda and I seem to come to this, I don't think works of art mean. I think they are. But I think artists are intelligent, and we can try to figure out what the artistic intelligence is doing. I mean, that's why the well, book is well, called Pictorial Intelligence, not, not Pictorial really. Imagination. Right. So I'm not trying to say, what does something mean? I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm less satisfied with just saying, well, look, I, I mean, I'm less satisfied with the stance in which which Linda so well described, and I'm persuaded by that. I mean, I think, well, you know... Well, art's meaning is its, is its set is of its values. I mean, it's not, meaning, it's not meaning as in a decodable, yeah, exactly. uh, translatable thing. Right. Or, and, and she was trained, don't forget, she was trained as an actor, actor before yes. going on to study with Mike Kelly in Pasadena. So it seems to me more about being than, 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 than signifying, which is good. Which is great. Listen, audience, you've been very patient, but we've, we've, we've had some heated debate here on three very significant shows. Um, and let's hear from you. Let's not forget Jeff Wall, who we started with, and we were debating the whole issue of, of why he's gone back to black and white, what, what his realism can possibly mean, and what the value is of his scale. We looked at Rovner and came to some disagreements there about uh, uh, whether we should be trying to uh, evaluate it in a symbolic and a, a political sense. Or, or whether we, again, should be able to engage with it in a more sensual or playful way. And, uh, and, and, and then we've been talking about Catherine Sullivan. So comments on, on any of those are very welcome. Um, but let's try and be a little disciplined and do it one at a time. Otherwise, it will just be all over the place. So Jeff Wall. Anyone got anything to say about Jeff Wall? And it's always, uh, you know what? It always works that whatever you discussed last is what everyone wants to talk about. But let's, yes, let's be really are. grown up and remember what we wanted to say about Jeff Wall. Says, because yes, the gentleman there, wait for the mic if you would. That would be great. Thank you very much. When I think of great photography, I think of like Sebastian Salgado or Eugene Smith's Minimata where the picture of the woman, the, the sick child in the woman's arms, was so moving. And it, there was a lot of black in it, very dramatic, and you really felt the depth of the feeling of the people. And one, one thing I noticed was, I also agree that it was very flat, and that the idea that you can sum up everything in one single image was disturbing to me. I, I'm a photographer, and it seems to me like a story like that with the children playing the games should be told in a, in a narrative where there's more, you're more engaged in a sequence of images. Whereas this one image that tries to sum it all up seemed kind of cold to me and without feeling. Mm. 
Okay. That's my observation. That's, that's a very valid one. We didn't think, we didn't address that. Anyone else on wall? I, I heard the, the term size and scale sort of muddled about up there, and I, I would like to know if you could talk about each of them. They're obviously big things, but scale is relational, and so, you know, in relation to what, the printer, the size of the kinesthetics of the person in front of the space? Well, that, that's a very good question, um, but it's really your chance audience to, to say, to, to phrase it not as a question, but as, you know, basically just saying the panel didn't really grasp the, the distinction between size and scale, which is, which is a, a valid criticism. I mean, is uh, that, what, is is that, that what you were saying, well, Sheila, that you, that? Yeah, I think you kind of flew through it, but I think if you, as a group, followed out the mm. distinction between those, you'd come to some assessment of why are they big. I mean, it's... It, well, I think that those of us who didn't like the fact that they were so big felt that they lacked scale, and the, one, the ones who, who, who did approve of its uh, size obviously felt it justified, was justified because of its scale. Um, I, I basically think that large and small is not something to... I, I, I'll just throw it out tentatively, is not something, an area in which Wall is very sensitive. When we get to Sylvia Beckley, the drafts person, she is hugely sensitive. We, could, we can look at them maybe, or we will see them again. She's hugely sensitive to size and the space in which things appear. And I, and I think my own bet is that Wall has been doing things rather large, even mm. though still lives that he did that were in the MoMA show were big. I mean, they were not bigger than any still lives. There have been still lives that big. Matt, Matisse and 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 uh, Deheim did one, but he tends to go big, mm. and I think that was something to do with photography. And I don't think he then, having done that, I don't think the size has. He just thinks big. I think he's got into a routine of doing them big, and that, right. right at the beginning, it was it had That's a major I mean. impact. It was strategic. Was, was, right. was really important. Right at the beginning, it was about saying this is not photography. This is art. This is a right. painting pursued Absolutely. through the camera. And there, it was fabulous and exciting that it was big. Absolutely. Now it's big because Jeff Hall does them big, and Marion Goodman. I just want to say, big. you know, when they were big and they were like paintings, so they could be big at any size, mm -hmm. right? Because paintings can be in any size. Yes. Linda? But well, the word, uh, Linda can I, can on scale. I, yeah, I'm sorry. But okay. I, I, a few years ago, I did a class called The Big Picture. And we studied big pictures. And we went into exactly this problem. Why? In the, we, it was about 19th century, for the most part. But why were some painters making things enormous? And I'm not talking about... Mural painting, we didn't even really, though we slightly touched on that. I'm just talking about canvases. Why is Rosa Bonner's horse fair so enormous? Why is, is Courbet's studio uh, untransportable? Um, why did they paint so big? Well, you know, there's some simple answers and some complicated ones. One reason was that the salon, where they had all the paintings you know, climbing up the wall, being big was one way of getting people to see your picture. Yes. Uh, especially but so was, so but was being, was being yeah. small. Yeah, Chardin did exactly the so opposite. Maisonnier yeah. did teeny weeny pictures, and they had to put a, right. a string or a, a rope around so mm -hmm. because people crowded in. But on the whole, bigness was like a penis. 
You know, it was like oh, <laughs> big stuff. And Rosa Bonheur, wa- Rosa Bonheur wanted one, didn't she? And well, she wanted a big, uh-huh. big she had place yeah. under yes. the sun. I just want to say that and if this is in relation, if his quest is in relationship to photography, then he has to leave the painting aside. Um, if you're talking about black and white, traditional black and white photography, you're talking about a mechanical thing with mechanical yeah. processes right. that will dictate the size. And it seems to me that the sensitivity should be mm-hmm. in relationship to that. Well, that's and why not he gross blows it, to my point, to my eye, right, because think, he, doesn't, he can't I cope with the size. I think he's competing in the world of the big picture, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but Linda, when, you, when, you, when, you, make a, when you make a billboard or when you do a, 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 a big movie, the technicality is all set up to work at that size. These, these are images are kind of pokey, basically, and they all go to pieces when they're that size because the middle ground doesn't uh, have the crispness that he requires. They smudge. I don't see why photography requires crispness. There was a whole school of photographers who loved blur. They were called the pictorialists, and they deliberately did not have crispness. There is nothing that any medium demands as long as you can do something It doesn't demand, but it has certain constraints and encourages. I mean, I think that that mediums have constraints, Linda. They're not just all over the map. When you take up, right now we're in a time when people are very hesitant to cleave to media. Everybody's breaking through. But breaking through depends on having something to break through from and to. And I think that the medium is, the constraint helps you. And I feel at this moment in this show, it's not helping. It is not helping, Walt. Right. Well, well, I think, I I want to follow uh, your question a bit down there, and, and then making reference back to what Linda has said earlier about Courbet, have this great desire to paint huge pictures, and uh, and it's true about that because he's known to be to, to have the greatest, biggest signature in history of Western painting. But to to go back, I mean, in terms of scale, scale and and and. Proportion is a two different concerns entirely. I mean, there's a reason why Pollock loved Albert Pinkham Ryder, you know. And when you look at Ryder, it's a very small painting, but it's monumental because the image emerged right up to the, you know, to the picture plane. So I think flatness is not exactly what we call uh, plastic. I mean, the two different things. And, and likewise with the way the, you know, some of the Morandi's painting of Cezanne. I mean, it's not exactly what we would call intimate paintings. Mm. Okay, let's move on now and let's see, if, does anyone in the audience have something to tell us about uh, Rovner and their feelings about Rovner? <laughs> yes. I don't, have to tell you about. I don't have anything to tell you about them, but I was curious about the block in the center, what you thought about that. Was it a place for um, ritual whatevers? Uh, was it a stepping stone? It was very, I mean, it seemed, in comparison to the structure, it was very simple, but it was there. And it was right in, your, in, in a, a direct sight, and you couldn't help but see that. And I, no one had addressed that, and I have no idea what, what it well, meant. Well, she, she found actually the whole entire cubicle construction is based on that very object. On that thing. Yeah, and I, we can't identify it, but it, it reminded me some of the the fountain in Egypt, you know, the, that plays in small town for children to play, or some kind of grinding object, I think. Uh, so we can't really identify, but where, wherever <laughs> it is, uh, it, it, it strikes her as being an object that she 
want to build something similarly, that's mm-hmm. why when you look at it, it's, it's a square configuration. Mm. So it mm. built up from that geometry. Yes. Did, does anyone, would anyone like to offer us an interpretation of, um, of, of Rovner's it, show? It's got a trough, it's got a platform, a trough around the outside, and, and a, a spout on the edge, doesn't it? I mean, it looks like something for slaughtering something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lady at the uh, one couple of rows back towards the. Mm-hmm. I just I'm very curious about um, wondering who constructed it in the gallery itself. Oh well, she have a crew of, of ten people. I think. Were they Israeli and Palestinian? Yeah, both. Yeah. I have some interpretations. One is an association to the Wailing Wall in Israel. And rather than hopefulness, I see it as a symbol of hopelessness, since there's no exit and there's no entrance. And it might be about the Israeli-Arab situation in which there is no solution. And the thing in the middle, that stone thing, I associate to a cemetery and a grave. Those are my associations. I did not like it. I think it's way too ambiguous that, and unclear, but those are my associations to it. So it's a place of sacrifice well, with no hope. It's a, a, a sad combination. Anyone, <laughs> anyone else? Well, if, if that's the way that you see it, and then you know, waiting for Godot is, could be seen in the same light. Uh, I don't see it that way. I think there's a lot of compassion there. And our last show that we've been thinking about so far is uh, Catherine Sullivan, and uh, uh, it, 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 it aroused different emotions, but um, uh, again, uh, uh, some, some degree of confounding us. Uh, anyone in the audience feel that they can uh, shed light or, or share an interpretation? Yes, uh, wait for the mic if you would. Yeah, um, I had a similar reaction to Linda. I sat with that piece for about 45 minutes the first time I went in, and then I went in again. And I think, you know, even just the positioning of sitting down is so helpful and just losing yourself with that piece. I didn't, I read the details and I I instantly forgot it. It just felt like art to me. It felt beautiful and grotesque and spooky. Uh-huh. and funny yeah. and it did poke fun at us and it did that through the power plays between the people uh-huh. you know so I Good just right. I think point. video needs to be seen in comfortable ways and that's, that's and it's, an appeal that can certainly be taken up with many galleries yeah I mean they don't always make it comfortable for you but they did in that space and the thing mm-hmm. is is that um also, the fact that it wasn't a beginning, middle, end narrative made it comfortable to be able to mm-hmm. inspect it in a general way. You don't have to sit and wait for the beginning again to get it. There's not anything to get. It's just something to um, tantalize your imagination. Right. Okay. A couple of rows forward. Yeah. I just want to say that I think it's really um, challenging the viewer's desire to interpret. It sort of is about not being able to interpret something because we don't understand the language that's being spoken to us in Neanderthal. We try to. We try to make sense. It's also, I think, for me, it was about my desire to make sense and to understand a language that I wasn't even meant to understand. Right. Great. 
Um, any anyone else on Sullivan? Sullivan? Well, I could say. Can I say? Yes, please. Thing? Absolutely. Um, I like to give up understanding. I spent so much of my time interpreting and so on. There's a delicious feeling of just letting it wash over me. I mean, and, and it's not totally passive by any means. I think the person in the turquoise jacket put it very well. And um, I think there's passive incomprehension and I think there's active incomprehension in which you really allow yourself to um, react, to associate, to make, if not sense, make, um, which I, don't, I don't even know what the, uh, construct something that's uh, in your imagination and in your feelings. And I think that enabled you to do that and, and there were moments of, of firmer connection. And there were interpretive moments. It just, you didn't interpret the whole thing as one continuous Linda, do you thing. feel that way sometime? Is this peculiar to movies, cinematic yeah. things? Yeah. Or do you feel that way reading a novel or looking at a sometimes, painting? Sometimes I feel that way, yes. But do you think it might be anything temporal? Yes, but not looking at a painting so much. You don't feel that as much looking. Well, at a painting. no, because a painting stands still. So it is peculiar or I think it's powerful it, for it video sound, or film. It sounds film rather like the condition video. of looking at dance. I mean, yes. dance yeah. in dance, yeah. the narrative very is much. very subsidiary. Okay. Very much, and I, I and am a not, dance person. I see a lot of And she's collaborated here with dancers, so, okay. so yeah. that makes sense. Right. Wonderful, great. Little moment of consensus. Let's uh, let's squash that and get back to the serious business of um, uh, disagreeing. So let's look at our. Um, let's actually look at the. Yes, our, our next show we're going to look at is uh, uh, Dan Walsh at uh, Paula Cooper. These are installation shots, and um, of course, this is our first painter of the evening. So a reminder of the fact that we're not enjoying the best projector. My projector died this evening. Please say a prayer for my projector. Great. And it was useful to see that first installation shot because something that was rather striking about the show, I wondered if it had been hung especially for wheelchair users or children <laughs> or, or even my dog because the paintings were virtually touching the floor and then I was wondering whether... Paula Cooper was showing off what high ceilings she has by making it even more. Like old Guggenheim, that was the Hilary yes. Bay's idea. Yes. Apparently, though, I, I did make inquiries, and it's very much part of the artist's uh, ethos. He always hangs his work very low to the ground so that you don't look up to it as an image, but, but have it, apparently this is the intention, have it within your own space as a thing in your, in your world. Um, very striking, very handsome work, in my opinion. Um, and I, I'm, I'm left to savour and ponder the um, gentle tension between their being very handmade and at the same time serial. They're mm -hmm. being um, achieved, perceptual kind of works, and at the same time conceptual in that um, the, the grid, the repetition, the series is obviously very premeditated and the, the consistency of tone even though it's handmade, make it feeling um, almost mechanical. If, if, if uh, Jeff Wall can be near documentary, these are uh, near mechanical, but, but 
also near organic because one has a strong sense of the hand that originates it. Um, how did you get on with it, Svetlana? Well, they look great in that space, I thought. But, of course, that Cooper space, a bit like its brother place or sister place across the street, the new Pace, are both spaces which are, which are Cooper before Pace on 21st, just handled well. I mean, there's an intelligence in picking the art and also hanging it in there. So you're never quite sure. Uh, you know, the space helps the art look good. It's a great compliment to that art to be able to be hung in that great, tall Cooper room. Um, and that interplay, I think, is a common experience at Cooper. And one of the things you know when you go around like this is galleries which resonate a certain way, where you go and you know you expect something that you've seen, something a bit like it before. That's mm -hmm. an intelligence in a gallery one, really. I like that. Even if I don't like what they like, I like to know they like something, and that's very mm -hmm. nice. Now, actually, that hanging low does match the design of these things. They're weighted works. They look like mm -hmm. a surface which is worked evenly across, but actually within each work there's a kind of weight on the surface that goes down. They're not totally symmetrical. Things don't go right up to the top. They go uh, down. At first glance, they sort of take up something you said, David. They reminded me a bit of Agnes Martin. But when you get close, that's not true. Um, the play of the brush is very different. There's a kind of roughness. They're not slowly done, they're fast done. I was amazed. This is a show in 2008, opened on February 22nd, 10 of the 12 paintings are dated 2008. Just think of that. You've seen those works. I was amazed when I saw that. 10 of them were done between the 1st of January and the 22nd of February. So that says something about the, I mean, I was just astounded, and I went back and checked it. And unless he's misdated, I mean, artists can misdate their paintings, or the gallery can, but it seems that that's so. They're very fa fa fact, uh, and, and I would say, Close up, they're a bit jokey. There's a kind of wit and funniness about them. Now, in the book, which wasn't yet available, but you could look at the single copy, this sometimes happened, Walsh's own take on that is to describe himself. He said, you could describe me as Gustin Paints Martin. And I thought that was smart and clever. The one thing I would say is that they seem to me to lack the urgency, or is it the necessity of either Gustin or Martin? But they're from a very different generation, and, aren't they? Well, be... no, but they're human makings. Come on now. You don't, every, they're human makings. And I think what you miss, and I mean, with Martin, there's that certain madness. You feel that if she didn't do this work, all hell would break loose, right? This keeps her together. You don't feel this is much more playful. It's play, yes. in a way. And okay. I suppose I'd You're say... You're writing a lot of points. I'd, I'd say that it's a kind of holding operation. He's keeping something going, but I just don't think he's going anywhere. That was sort of my feeling about it. Very pleasant, keeping something going, but not really going somewhere. Okay? <laughs> Well, Linda, as the, somebody who wants the art to wash over you, it's probably just as well it's not going anywhere. So uh, were you frustrated by it's not going anywhere, or did that help the oceanic no. experience of letting it I wash just... over? <laughs> no, no oceanic. I, um, I wasn't very interested. <laughs> I just wasn't. There was one I loved the, called Violet Painting, mm -hmm. and I would give the whole rest of the show for that because... I take that seriously. I thought that was utterly beautiful. And I stood in front of it with some artist friends whom I was with um, for a while. 
The others, I don't know. I, you know, I love Donald Judd and I love Agnes Martin, and I—I mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of art I really like very much. But except for and Violet, must have had something in it which was more moving and more sensible and more yes. interesting than the. If, I think your jokier ones. It yeah. wasn't jokey. More conceptual it some, ones. Suddenly got. Serious yeah, about painting and mm. color, and I thought it was rather. Fong, was there one that really stuck out in your mind, or what was your general feeling? Well, I like this show a lot because I've, I've been following Dan works for a while. Exactly what Linda has said, you know, all the minimalist artists that we love. Uh, I mean, he created a space for himself. Mm -hmm. I've been following works for a while, and I, I think knowing what we all know of, of his attraction to minimalist reductive means. Uh, I'm not so sure, however, to, to jump to the reference being made with, uh, you know, Art Reinhardt or Solowit because I don't think Dan Dwash's uh, entire evolution as a painter never gone through mm -hmm. the process of a kind of a, a gestural or calligraphic negotiation with pseudo-biomorphic form that Reinhardt did before gaining finally the, the, the beautiful, highly restrained black mm -hmm. abstract paintings. Mm -hmm. uh, nor the serialization of, of Solar Wit, for that matter, was so important to his early works. I think what struck me about Dan's work, over, I mean, Wash work over the years, is that I think the level of, of uh, confidence, mm -hmm. I mean, when you say, you pointed out the whole show was painted this year, I observed yeah, for all a but long two. time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the every judge stroke is highly reduced and deliberate. And the level of transparency of them, when overlap, reveal the opacity mm -hmm. of whatever form that they come out, and this great deal of irregularity there mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I feel spatially is fascinating. And it's not just because there's a center of gravity that holds the form mm -hmm. down, mm -hmm. but you feel there's a certain kind of uh, wit. Yes, which I think, is, a, which I think yeah. is, is key, isn't it? These are not um, I aiming said jokey. to be. These, you think it's wit, not jokey. Not well, I think it's. Really I think it's painting about painting. I think that it's. Uh, it will be entirely. The immediate impression I get is, uh, whatever relation these images have to the history of reductive art, it will be erroneous to think that they're even aspiring to any kind of metaphysics or spirituality that one would get in an artist such as uh, uh, Agnes Martin. Agnes Martin, by the way, is already uh, a, on a different planet from Donald Judd. But um, it seems to me that while, we, and I love Svetlana's point about particular venues resonating um, with their past works, there's no question that here's an artist who has a degree of reverence for uh, canonical, classical, minimal art. Uh, but there's also no question this is a younger artist. This is an artist who's uh, got that absolutely um, defining anxiety of his generation about can you, how can you paint now? And I see these as, as, as very akin um, to, to artists as diverse as James Siena and Thomas Noskowski, that these are... Um, they are wonderfully. Kaskos is a bit older, but he's got a young spirit, and I think there's a sense of um, playing with the possibilities of mm -hmm. of making images, mm -hmm. and I think that mm -hmm. it's um, it's it's a late chapter in the history of abstraction, right. and to judge it by the criteria there for mm -hmm. of the earlier chapters would I think um, not not get anyone anywhere too far. Uh, and also to add it to what you say there. Um, 
how they paint it's very important too because it, it, it revealed that that mm. I would rather you know add it to rather than wit it would the lightness yes of touch lightness of touch I mean Tom Narkowski is heavy uh, the he form is. appeared to be light but they painted heavily which mm -hmm. is very fascinating for those of you who are painters I mean, those who work with oil do have some prejudice against those who, who paint with acrylic. Yes. Unless you out hell. I mean, that's a different matter. But I think there's something to be said about the way that at wash paints make those brushes, you know, mm -hmm. and appear to be the way they do. And also, in addition to that, Alan Uklo, who hang low yes. paintings in, in the 70s, 80s have a great deal... Mm -hmm to do with Dan, and I think Dan Walsh, and he take a, a bit further, because w why they hang low they do, it's not just relation to the body, but also it as much as it amplifies the architecture or the, the environment, the background environment, yes. it also subdues it at the same time. So if you walk through the whole gallery, going towards it, and you see how it changes the space in relationship to your own mm -hmm. body and the architecture, I find that yes. an incredible show. Wonderful. Let's look at our last show, which is Sylvia Beckley. Well, just listening to the whispers and the ums and the ahs <laughs> on the panel, I suspect, uh, if I could convey to you, the possibility may be that some of us feel we might be saving the best till last. A very nice dessert. Um, um, here's an artist who's uh, had a retrospective at the Pompidou Centre and who's pretty unknown in the United States. So... What are we to make? Of, what are we to make of that? What, what's our what's our feeling about? Rep, before we get on to the work, a quick word on reputation. Does this um, is this still a is this really despite globalization an enormous gulf in taste <laughs> between Europe and America? And does this show reflect it in any way? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, I think she looks like a European. I, I would connect her to French artists to maybe support her first to Viala, to Parmentier, to mm -hmm. Barret. That. that seems to me or would be that's what I think of even though it's not so and also to Peter Freeman that's another gallery which has not a program but where you go and see like the cliche fair show that they had before this mm -hmm. is in keeping with that Amazing, it's yeah. it's it's about perception the gallery just does that mm -hmm. you know when you go to Peter Freeman mostly you're going to see it's I mean as I say it's very different from Cooper it's very different from Pace but it has a sense of itself, and she mm. fits that sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Linda, what did you make of these works? So it's well, I didn't see this, but I saw her retrospective. All right. So she yes. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I uh, know the work pretty well. I like it very much. Um, she gives you just enough and no more, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes even a little less. Uh, mm. A tease. A tease. Uh, I think she she realized that she can make gouache speak. I mean, she can make the medium speak, imply, invoke. Um, she knows just how far to go and how mm -hmm. to use the medium. And she, she, play, she uses accident, too. She's not afraid to uh, let it get somewhat out of hand, and then it turns into what it was going to turn into. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the references to re reality, if you can call that, mm -hmm. or the evocations, light evocations. Mm -hmm. And some of it is, is quite abstract and, and plays only with the medium. But I think mm -hmm. it's a very delicate and deft 
and uh, mm -hmm. intriguing sensibility, and it gives great pleasure, I think. Yes. At least to me. I got great pleasure from the fact that there were some, when, when they were representations, it was done abstractly. When, yeah. it was, when were there abstractions, there was a teasing of a possibility of representation. Yeah. And yet, it didn't give us that tired as hell kind of argument about abstraction no, versus representation. I mean, you use the word phenomenological in your review, if I can quote your review. And that's right. I mean, I thought Merleau-Ponty, and I went back and looked, he looks at his hand on the desk, or a stone on the wall of the Tuileries in the Place de la Concorde, and first you see the stone, and then you see its roughness, and then you just see a spot of color. And that's th that sensibility. She has a great sense of scale, an extraordinary sense of scale. And but some are bigger, some are smaller. She's very sensitive to that, mm -hmm. and the sense of scale is anthropomorphic. In other words, she's, uh, she's, it's, or let's say it's phenomenological. She's, and this is where I think, well, he, maybe he doesn't need it, but it's a good comparison to what he just seems to me not to have. He's got other things. She's not doing what he does. When she makes a gesture, and I think the reason that she can slide from rep abstraction to representation is this phenomenological mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Right? It, there's no difference, really. Mm -hmm. She can put that wonderful torso of the woman. I don't think we saw that small torso. Oh, it and it just seems mm. right. And it really does beg that difference so mm. powerfully for one as a viewer of pictorial images. I mean, it's just fabulous that way. It's a lesson mm -hmm. in itself. I'm glad we saved her for last because um, <laughs> we'll given you know, to, to the time that we live in, that everything had to do with overproduction. Got quicken the pace. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah. this is an artist who just draws. He doesn't even paint. I mean, she mm -hmm. used black ink and uh, wash, you know? Mm -hmm. And remarkable in a sense, at the same time, it's no nostalgia. Uh -huh. She's extremely contemporary because there's a certain kind of stubbornness that attached to her her aesthetic devotion mm -hmm. that cannot be, you know, discounted. And I think there's something also, the sequence of how she treat the line, the form, that I think is fascinating to me. If you look at the, the one drawing that have one line on the left, one stroke, and then go diagonally, and she run out of ink, that's, that counted for a second gesture, and then she overlap whatever left in the edge, continue to go across to the, 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 the side of the paper, and it's so monumental to me. And then you go back to the one on the left, which is three lines going horizontally. In between them, there is a transmute, uh, mutation, mm -hmm. very lightly painted, mm -hmm. with five brush strokes that go horizontally and then go vertically. Mm -hmm. yes. And none of them are alike. And then you go do another p uh, drawing or painting, None of them look alike. It reminds me of, uh, of uh, Rauder Kaiser, the, the, yeah. the Belgian painter. Yeah. Yes. It, it evoked, a solo group show. Yes, yes. It, exactly. It evoked also uh, perhaps Helmut Federle, her own mm -hmm. Swiss contemporary. Mm -hmm. But I think he lived in America so long, so there's a density there. Yes. Uh, and the, but I want to emphasize a little bit on the way in which she can move from one plate to the other. It reminds me of this beautiful fable that, that Cavino um, mentioned in the, the last book. I think it was meant to be the choice. He's uh, lecture at Harvard, but he died in 87, I believe. It's about uh, the Empress Charlemagne, uh, who fell in love with a maiden girl. Um, and the whole court was very worried. 
uh, but for some curious, I mean, illness, she died, and, and then he fell in love with her corpse. So everybody now is even more worried. Uh, so he wouldn't allow the corpse to be buried. So he be, expressed some macabre behavior. So one night, the, the, the archbishop came in and examined her body, discovered there's a ring in her mouth. So out of an act of spontaneity, he put in his index finger. The next day, the emperor fell in love with him. So the whole court now worry again. He expressed some homosexual tendency. And so Archbishop was so worried, he went back to the, 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 the palace and throw the ring into the Lake Constant, whereby the emperor go there every evening and observe and contemplate the moon. That's the end of the story. So the one sequence, you know, take one to the other, what holds the ring? And this is what exactly how I feel about her work. Wonderful. The unpredictability in the, in, in the way she, she, she gestures every single like cow with extreme I th economy. I think that's a fable that we'll all have to take into the evening and savor. <laughs> it's my task simply to thank oh. all of you for a wonderful contribution, audience and panel alike. You say she closes tomorrow. I should also... Svetlana has wisely asked me to let, let it be known that the show uh, Sylvia Beckley closes tomorrow. Uh, so get yourself down to Soho if you didn't see that gem of an exhibition. And uh, hope to see you all on April the 11th for the review panel with Dory Ashton, Joshua Mack, and Stephen Main. Thank you very much. Thank you. Isn't that nice that we ended? Yeah. And upbeat. I'm in agreement. Upbeat and what, in How big was the retrospective? And was it really? Medium. I don't remember, but it was, it was not huge.